Theology of the Body Institute. This is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hello and welcome to Ask Christopher West. Hosted by my beloved Wendy West. We're so happy to be with you guys. We're getting such great feedback. We really appreciate all the listeners out there. We're getting lots of great questions so many questions, we don't have time for all of them. We're so sorry, but we do what we can in the time we're allotted, and we're excited to be doing this together yes. and for you guys. Yes, and we know, too, that sometimes your question might be answered in the answer to someone else's question, if you right. have the ears to hear it, so keep the questions coming. And keep listening, and listen to some of the back episodes, too, because mm-hmm. maybe we've already addressed a question in a previous episode. This is true. This is true. And if you listen all the way to the end, you get to hear silly bloopers of ours. <laughs> and I'm going to open right now with a blooper of mine. That last episode I was sharing about... Uh, oh, yeah. that This is two episodes uh, in a row with some Wendy yes, bloopers. I don't know. The Lord's trying to show me something about my human frailty right Humility. now. Humility. Humility. It is true. Because there is a certain... In each of these blooper stories, there was a pride somewhere yeah. going before the fall there. <laughs> Oh, dear. Well, next one is from a couple weeks ago. A friend of mine and I took a trip to wild, wonderful West Virginia, which is... Was it almost heaven? West Virginia? It is so beautiful. Blue Ridge Mountains? It really was Shenandoah River? All of that. Somebody out there knows what song I'm quoting. (laughs) It really was. It is gorgeous, but it is very remote. A lot of times you don't have your cell signal, your GPS, those things that we rely on. Well, we went to visit... um, a mutual friend in West Virginia, and I have been to their house several times, and I do know the way, but I kind of got thrown off. I don't know. The sad part is the pride that went before this fall, I think, Ah, because I really wanted to get to their house as quickly as possible. You were staying in a hotel, and it was going to be an hour drive. Yes, it was an hour drive. But instead, it was... Okay, well, I'll get there. (laughs) We took an exit off the highway, get a little breakfast, and when we get, went to get back on, it was actually at the place where we should get on a totally different road. The uh-huh. exit where we got off to get breakfast is the same exit where we should have gotten off that oh, highway. Oh, oh, but oh. You went back on the highway when I you got, were supposed to stay off the highway. Exactly. I'm driving. I get back on 79 South that I totally did not need to be on anymore and didn't even realize it. I was feeling that sort of, oh, I feel so good. I can navigate to our friend's house. And then... Suddenly, I don't know what, like, suddenly it hit me. <gasps> Probably 15 minutes into driving the total wrong direction. Ugh, we weren't even supposed to be on this road. And then we're trying to get the GPS to tell us what we should do. And to turn around, we'd have to drive another six miles just to get to an exit, one of those country mm-hmm. highways mm-hmm. where you can't turn around. And we thought, oh, well, probably we could just navigate from here instead of 10 minutes that way, another 30 minutes the other direction to get back to the original turn. That proved to be yet another mistake because as we're navigating from this new location, we ended up on this very, very remote gravel one-lane road over a mountain in beautiful West Virginia, which is beautiful. But very nerve-wracking to be driving in just a regular car, not something meant for four-wheeling, on this rutted and one-lane gravel road that if another car came the other direction, it would be a difficult 
place to meet. So we were kind of laughing, definitely praying, and looking forward to when the GPS was going to tell us to turn off this gravel road. And we were counting down, you know, okay, we have half a mile left on this road. Well, would you believe when we get to the place of the turn, the road that GPS wanted us to go on was actually just two muddy ruts going up the next mountain, and just not even a road at all. It didn't even have gravel, much less pavement. And we just said, are you kidding? Are We are not. <laughs> this car can't do it. No, there's no. Well, here's, this driver can't do it. Here's one of the funny things about this story, because the very same weekend you were having that problem. Yes. I was on an adventure with the kids in Vermont. Right. And we had a very similar problem, but this prideful driver kept <laughs> Going. And I'll, I'll, we'll save that one for our next episode. <laughs> oh, so stay, stay tuned for the next episode. There's something, I hadn't even thought about this before, but there seems to be, I don't know, this was going on with you and me at the same time. You were in West Virginia. Yeah. I'm in Vermont. Right. And so, I don't know, maybe there's a lesson here for us we haven't really I know. looked at it's yet. Sure, well, we called it the weekend of misadventures yes, because they were supposed indeed. to be just adventures, but got a little crazy. So, Lord, you know, we lift up our mistakes to you and our misadventures. Bring he, he good can, out of he it can all. yes, he can bring good out of our misadventures. And stay tuned to the next episode when I'll share a similar misadventure yes, in yes. Vermont. How crazy. Here we have our first question. First question from, from a from listener named Melissa. Hi, Bless Melissa. You, Melissa. Melissa says, some saints have been known for their mortification of their bodies. And I've always found that to be a little confusing. If our bodies are good, why would they do that? And why does the church recognize it as saintly? Melissa, this is a question that has puzzled me as well for many, many years. And I I think I've come to some resolution in my own thinking about it. Uh, I don't hold this out as, you know, the answer to it all, uh, but I will just share some of my own reflections about it. If they are helpful, great. Number one, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, and it's right in the Catechism. We are obligated, not an option, we are obligated to honor our bodies. And there are some pretty weird stories out there about strange things saints have done regarding their approach to the body. For example, is it, Wendy, is it St. Rosa Lima who had the worm in her head? <laughs> Was it? We might be getting the names wrong here, so, so you can look it up. Saint Somebody let us Rita know. Rita of Kosh. Rita, St. Rita, or St. I don't know. It was a saint. It was a woman who started with an R. <laughs> yeah, there we go. And she had this, this wound on her forehead, and a worm took up residence in this wound. And apparently, as the story goes, the worm dislodged one day, which, from my perspective, any normal human being would say, thank you, God, that this worm is now out of my wound. But she had this bright idea just to put the worm back. (laughs) She picked it up and put it back in her wound. Okay, she lived in a different time. She lived in a different place. Maybe she thought there was some medicinal value to having the worm eat her flesh. I don't know. I can't read into it all. It just seems weird to me. And then you, of course, you have stories of saints who would throw themselves into thorn bushes to avoid temptations to lust. You have stories of saints who would flagellate themselves with cords or, or whips. I urge caution here. I urge caution here because this can go in a very dark direction very quickly. 
We should not be taking any kind of, and this is, this is sound spiritual advice, we should not be taking any extraordinary physical penances into our lives without very clear and wise spiritual direction, right? Also in the tradition, you have many a saint who will say, the normal frustrations, difficulties, and penances that life dishes out day to day, that's all we need to embrace, right? That is very, very sound advice. Don't take upon yourself extraordinary penances. Indeed, this is also part of the tradition, that can, if we're taking it upon ourselves, that can also often stem from pride, from a, a kind of, I'm holier than thou, look what I do, look at the harsh penances I accept, I haven't eaten in three days, if everyone were just as holy as I was. So we have to be very careful about all that stuff. But let me pick one example that I think is sound, and I admire the saint, as everyone knows, it's St. John Paul II, and he, this came out after his death, reports that he had some kind of knotted rope that he would use at times as a penance uh, in terms of like he would throw it upon his back. Now, what, what, what's going on here? The explanation I heard that finally made this make some amount of sense is this. Sometimes we feel so interiorly united with Christ in our agony of suffering that it almost needs an outer manifestation. The, the suffering that some saints, some mystics, and John Paul II is one of them, you know, I, I, my sense of it is not that John Paul goes into his room and closes the door and says, in order to be holy, I'm going to beat my body with this knotted rope, but rather... He is in such union with the agony of Christ interiorly that to express something of it physically is almost a relief of the interior pain. It's like, Wendy, you know I have this habit when I'm really feeling pained about something, I'll start rubbing my scalp. Mm -hmm. I'll start digging my fingernails, like even, even I'm doing it right now, and I'm like... <laughs> I'm just acting it out. I'm not really frustrated know, right now, but know. you know how I do this. Like I'm, I'm in pain interiorly, and I'm, I'm like digging my fingernails into my scalp, and it, mm. it actually is like a ventilation mm. of the interior pain. Right. So that's how I've come to understand it. That those kind of penances are like a ventilation of the interior suffering they're feeling. Mm. Uh, I think we'll we'll leave it at that because unless you have something you want to say about it, Wendy. Yeah, just part of the question was why does the church recognize it as saintly? And something that just did you yeah. want to say well, something well, about? I, that? I, I will unless you touch on it. So you okay. go ahead and say what you're going to say. I just think that saints often help the people around them to wake up to deeper realities that they have been going about their life and not recognizing. And the differentness of the life of the saint is something that causes other people to appreciate heavenly realities because their life is different. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, I think of St. John Vianney in France not so very long ago who people were just living their life, but he felt that they were not recognizing their own sin. And he was, you know, doing penance for their sin and and seeing him take on the punishment yes, for yes. their sin woke them up. It caused people to recognize 
I need a savior. Yes, like, I am yes. a sinner. And it it was a tool of conversion for the hearts of his villagers. So when we, you know, the church holds something up as saintly, we live in such a different time than so many of these saints that it's hard for us to understand, but these very different lives were speaking something to people that awoke in them the desire for heaven, for reality beyond their sinful lives. So that's yep, what I very see helpful, there. Very helpful. The thing I was going to add was, I believe it was Mother Angelica who said, some saints are better admired than emulated. <laughs> and, and recently, Pope Francis, in his letter on holiness, said something to the, to the same effect, that when the church canonizes a saint, the church is not saying everything the saint ever did or said is meant to be emulated. We shouldn't say just because Saint so-and-so practiced such-and-such such a physical penance that therefore that is equal to what it means to be holy. Mm-hmm. Right? So we have to be very careful there. On the, on the one extreme, we must never understand these physical practices as a kind of hatred towards the body. It is not that at all. But in the best example that we have from the, the greatest saints, what we are witnessing is some kind of interior communion in the sufferings of Christ. That's what we're seeing, and that does bear fruit. But again, I just hold out the caution just as a reminder, in the normal Christian life, we don't go seeking these things. There are plenty of sufferings that come our way, and if we just embrace and accept the sufferings that come our way, unite them with Christ, we are on the road to holiness, and we can be at peace with that. Mm-hmm. Amen. Here's a question from Vivian. She asks, did Adam and Eve really exist, like really human beings, or are they just a tale and a way to explain original sin? Great question, Vivian. And in typical Catholic fashion, it's both and. Did Adam and Eve really exist? What the church says that we are required to believe is that there was an original man and woman from which the human race descended. We don't know their names. (laughs) We don't know where they lived. You know, it's not like there was a guy named Adam and a gal named Eve and they lived in this certain place. But there there was an original man and and an original woman. And there was some mysterious, we don't know how, what, where exactly, but there was a mysterious break from God's plan for their lives, and we have inherited, because we are their descendants, we have inherited what we call original sin. I would urge you to look up, and we can put this link in the show notes, a video by Bishop Barron, where he talks about how are we to read the Bible. And he says, that's like saying, uh, or, or no, the question was, should we take the Bible literally, was the question. And he says, well, that's like walking into a library and saying, should we take the library literally? Mm -hmm. It depends what section of the library you're in. Mm -hmm. The very word Bible means a collection of books. Mm -hmm. Think of a bibliography, right? Mm -hmm. Same root word, Bible. It's a collection of books. And there are some books in the Bible that we are to take literally. There are other books in the Bible that are not that genre. It's not that section of the library. Mm. It's more mythical, historical fiction, if you will, or poetry. You know, all kinds of genres of writing in the Bible. 
And when you get that mixed up, you come out with a very faulty understanding of the Bible. This we know about the creation stories in Genesis. They're not scientific textbooks, right? The scientific method was not even invented for thousands of years after the book of Genesis was written. So the the author of Genesis is not a scientist. He's a mystic. He's looking at the, the mysteries behind the physical world and using through, through symbol, John Paul II even says in the theology of the body, the authors of Genesis use a mythical kind of language. But here, mythical does not mean like a fantasy or something unreal or untrue, but a way of using language that gets us to a deeper truth. Mm-hmm. And here's often an analogy I'll use. I'll say to my audiences when I'm teaching these points, I'll say, ladies, what's the difference between when your optometrist looks in your eyes and when your, your husband or your boyfriend looks in your eyes. And then I'll, I'll jokingly say, unless, of course, you happen to be dating your optometrist, and right. then you get a little of both. Well, the optometrist is looking at your cornea and your retina, and he's going to write down the scientifically observable information. Kind of dry, boring, and technical if you ask me, but thank God for optometrists and Absolutely. all they can tell us. Whereas the lover... We, we hope, <laughs> we hope the lover's looking at the inner mystery, mm-hmm. at the spiritual reality, at the soul, and what he's going to write down is some kind of love poetry. That's one way to look at Genesis. The author of Genesis, he's a lover. He's, he's not a scientist. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Indeed. I hope that's helpful to you, Vivian. And I, I love that name, Vivian. I know it has some root in vivification, coming alive. Yes. So we hope you come to the fullness of life, Vivian. Bless you. Next question is from Katie. Hi, Katie. She has several questions here, so I'm just going to read it all and see where it goes. See where it goes. Can we talk celibacy for the kingdom? Nope. Next. Going right along. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, of course. We'll get back to that, Katie, but let me hear what else you're asking. I already discerned and entered and exited religious life, and I'm unable to be a consecrated virgin, but praise God for his mercy. I don't think I'm called to marriage, yet have a hard time accepting this consecrated life in the world. How am I really chosen versus looked over? Mm. How can I integrate my sexuality without counting the cost? In other words, accepting the ache. And how can I better make a sincere gift of self and see it as a call rather than condemnation? Wow. Katie, you are digging deep, girl. Mm-hmm. Now, Wendy, keep track of all that she said. I do want to try to touch on each of her points because they're so important, and you're great at keeping track of things I forget to talk about. Okay, I will try to help okay, in that so way. So celibacy. First of all, for the wider listeners, celibacy is something we we need to put in context. Katie, you already seem to have a a pretty good understanding as one who was pursuing celibacy and entered religious life and then left. But for the sake of the wider audience, let's recognize this. The Bible begins with the marriage of man and woman in an earthly paradise. It ends with the marriage of Christ and the church in a heavenly paradise. What we learn here is the whole purpose of marriage This is what John Paul II gets into with such great insight in his theology of the body. The whole purpose of marriage from the very beginning was to be a sign, a sacrament here on planet Earth 
of our heavenly destiny. The whole Bible in five words. Anybody who's followed me and read my stuff or been to my talks or courses, you know what I'm about to say. The whole Bible in five words, God wants to marry marry us. And he wanted this eternal marital plan to be so plain to us, so obvious to us. What's the next line, Wendy? He stamped an image of it right right in our body. Yeah, there it is. My wife's my biggest fan. She she knows. (laughs) She can complete my sentences better than anybody. Yes, so he stamped an image right in our bodies of this eternal reality. So lots of takeaways here. Here's just a few. Number one, the ache that we feel. Katie, you spoke of this ache. John Paul II speaks of this yearning that we feel in our solitude, right? This, the ache of solitude is a call to communion. We are made for communion. Think about it. A man's body doesn't make sense by itself. A woman's body doesn't make sense by itself. But seen in light of each other. Seen in light of each other. What do we see? A call to holy communion. Communion. That's theology of the body in a nutshell. Our bodies revealed a call to holy communion. But the holy communion for which we are destined is not revealed at the first book end of the Bible. It's revealed at the final book end of the Bible. This is why Jesus says, in the resurrection, we're no longer given in marriage. Not because marriage is bad, but because marriage is in the final reality, will have fulfilled its reason for being, its raison d'etre, which is to point us to the heavenly marriage. You no longer need a sign to point you to heaven when you are in heaven. In heaven, you're there. So what is celibacy for the kingdom? All of that, to answer that question, Christ says some remain celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, some skip the sign of heaven, which is marriage, to devote the whole of their aching longing for communion to the ultimate communion that alone can satisfy. In other words, celibacy for the kingdom. And here we have to distinguish between the wise and the unwise virgins that Jesus talks about. The wise virgins, their lamps are lit on fire. They get this. They are aiming their rocket engines at the stars. They understand celibacy is not sexual repression. It's a living out of the heavenly reality now, and they're lit up with that fire. That's what we're talking about, right? The wise virgin or the wise celibate is the one who understands I am made for something more than this world holds out, and their whole lives becomes a declaration that heaven is real. And it is worth selling everything to possess. Not the repression of sexuality. They are living out the full redemption of their sexuality. Okay. All that had to be said in order now to address some of the other questions. And can you help me remember what Mm -hmm. some of those were, Absolutely. So Katie asked, how am I really chosen versus looked over? Mm -hmm. Bless you, Katie. It's such a vulnerable question because it takes us to the core of what we need to know as human beings that we're loved, that we're chosen, that we're desired, that we're rejoiced in. And I've been reflecting on this quite a bit lately because some old wounds are coming back to me. They're kind of resurfacing and the Lord's shining his light on some of my broken patterns of thinking and acting and Uh, What's really coming 
to light for me is much of the environment I grew up in did not rejoice in my existence. I felt not rejoiced in, but I felt like I people wished I didn't exist. And that's a horrible, horrible place to be. But what's coming to me lately in prayer is that the very fact that I exist reveals that I'm chosen. Katie, you exist. Everyone listening out there right now, you exist. Wendy, you exist. Mm. I'm so glad you exist. Thank you. I exist. I'm so glad I exist. To exist is to be chosen. Mm. That is an astounding idea. And, and I was reading something recently that Pope Benedict XVI wrote where he says, our understanding of our own creation really pivots us in one of two fundamental directions. Where, you know, the modern story, the modern tale we are told is that we are the end result of a random biological evolution. Accidental. Accidental. You know, one sperm got there. If it was any of the other 500 million sperm that tried to get there, you wouldn't exist. So it's all just random. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe there's a loving hand that guided all those sperm that wanted that one sperm to reach that one egg for you, Katie, to exist. And not only that one sperm and that one egg from your parents' union, but remember, you're the fruit not just of your parents' union, but of their parents and 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 their parents, parents, the whole way back to the beginning of time. Maybe there was a loving hand guiding all those gazillions of sperms throughout all of human history because love chose you, Katie, to exist. If you let that sink in, And pray for me too, because I need to let it sink in. Mm -hmm. If we let that truth sink in, we will be living on a foundation in our whole lives that we are desired, that we are chosen, that we are loved. And the question of vocation becomes, not so much what am I going to do with my life, but rather how am I going to respond to this truth that I am chosen. How will I respond? Katie, you've been looking for how you're going to respond. You've pursued religious life. Apparently it didn't work out. And you shared, God bless you, and you praise God for his mercy. That, uh, you know, as a consecrated virgin, that's not an option for you. Praise God for his mercy. But what is the calling? What? How are you going to respond? And can you live as a single person in the world, a full response to God's love for you? The answer to that question is yes. The fundamental and innate vocation of every human being, John Paul II says, is love. And again, it's our response to him who loved us first. I often say, and I I think it's really important to recognize this, that we can't really say I love you, God. What, what, we, what we can say is, I love you too. Mm. Because it's always a response to his love that comes first. Is there, is there more that I'm forgetting here, Wendy, that Katie had talked about? I think you, you were kind of very naturally responding to some of her other specific questions just in that, where the Spirit led you. I think that's really speaking to what she was asking. I want to say one, one final thing to you, Katie. I think there was a question in there about what do you do with the ache? How do you integrate that? And I'm so glad 
you recognize that that ache, that longing, is a question of integrating your sexuality with your spirituality. You're absolutely right. You are chosen, which means you are a bride of Christ. Whether or not that has a formal expression or recognition in religious vows, you are a bride of Christ by virtue of your baptism. And the life of prayer is precisely, this is my favorite definition of prayer, got it from Benedict XVI. He's quoting from the fathers of the church, and he says, prayer, the fathers of the church teach us, is nothing other than becoming a longing for God. Let the yearning you feel, Katie, become your prayer. That yearning for love, that yearning to know you are chosen, there's an ache in your very question. How do I know I'm chosen? That ache opened up is prayer. Bless you, bless you, bless you in that ache. I'll be praying in my ache as I learn to open mine more to the Lord. I'll be praying for you, Katie, to learn to open yours more. We have a question from a listener named Sarah. Sarah says, I'm a Protestant Christian who's fallen in love with theology of the body and experienced its redemptive power in my own identity as a woman, wife, and mother. Awesome. Uh, this name's, her name is Sarah? Sarah? Awesome, Sarah. Bless you. I'm so excited for you. I'm so happy for you. That's awesome. She says, I eagerly want to share this revelation with my Protestant friends, especially the married women I know who accept birth control as a, quote, necessary part of marriage and even disdain children. Mercy, mercy. But given the historical divide in our church, whenever I've tried, the Catholic concepts are so foreign, such as the idea of sacraments, that it's hard to make headway. Any suggestions? Great question, Sarah. Number one suggestion is just keep being you. Just love these friends and family members, whoever they might be. Just keep being you. The more we enter into these truths ourselves, they come out our pores. Like if you eat a lot of garlic, it comes out your pores. I know I've shared that analogy before. <laughs> the more you let this theology of the body into your mind, into your heart, into your body, it will come out your pores and people will smell something beautiful coming out of you. And they'll begin to wonder, what is that beautiful fragrance? Where does it come from? So that's my first thought. Here are a couple um, also practical things you could do. I have recorded a six-hour series. I'm pretty sure it's six hours of an introduction to the theology of the body for Protestants. And we'll have it in the show notes uh, how you can get that. The series is called Our Bodies Proclaim the Gospel. And also next year, 2020, look for it, uh, I have written a book for Protestants on the theology of the body. So that's going to be coming out through Baker Bookhouse in the early part of 2020. So stay in touch with us, stay plugged into the podcast, stay plugged into our website and uh, you'll, you'll get, be getting information as to when that book will be coming out. As you were saying, there are, there's a certain language that Protestants are unfamiliar with that Catholics use. And over the years, I've, I've learned how to speak both Protestant and Catholic. And there really is an effective way to translate these teachings 
into a language that is more comfortable to a Protestant audience. So those are two resources that can help you. I hope that's helpful to you, Sarah. Bless you, bless you, bless you. The next question is from a listener named Jack, who says, as a single man, how do I navigate friendships with the virtuous women in my life that I'm not pursuing, but have a desire to love and grow in friendship with, while protecting their hearts from confusion and or rejection? Wow, Jack, that's an insightful question. I can already tell that you have uh, some good insights into the nature of a woman's heart. We're kind of back to the age-old question, if anybody remembers, when Harry met Sally, that whole long debate they had, can, can a man and a woman be friends, just be friends? Just be friends. I know you have some great insight here, Wendy, and I remember when we started dating, one of the things that really impressed me is the healthy friendships you had with men, because I was one of them, right? Before we even started dating, we had been good friends for a few years. Mm-hmm. But the more I got to know you, I, I realized you had... You helped me to see that it's really possible for men and women to be friends. And I, I remember working through you know, some friendships you had with some guys, and did I think that was strange or weird, or would that need to change? And I remember coming to have some friendships with some female students that I was studying with at the JP2 Institute when mm-hmm. we were in our early marriage, and talking to you about, you know, how, how do I navigate this? Can I have a healthy friendship with this person, and what does mm-hmm. that look like? Um, the answer to these questions, can it be done, is yes, but not without a certain sensitivity, which I think, Jack, you're already recognizing in the nature of your question. So I'm wondering, Wendy, as a woman, do you have some pointers for Jack as to how to navigate those sensitivities? Because what did he say there at the end yeah, of his question? Yeah, I think he said, that one of the things that Jack is saying is he opens the question as a single man, and I think some of right. what we were just talking about here, we were in, it was in the context of we already knew our commitment right. was to one another. And I think that it gets a little bit trickier yeah, when does. you don't right. have a committed one person that's clearly the one. Because there's that lingering question, could this go somewhere right. further? Yes, for both people. Right. So I think navigate is a great expression right there because it's saying respond to the present moment as it arrives. That's what we do when we're navigating in traffic or in mm-hmm, a boat or mm-hmm, whatever. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're remaining alert and directing according to what's arising. And I think that, you know, the first thing is to recognize it's a good desire to grow in friendship with both men and women. And I think, yes, we do need to recognize that there's a, a level of intimacy that is appropriate only to certain types of relationships. And when it's a man and a woman, perhaps too much intimate sharing, of, say, of hearts can lead to confusion. And women are, yeah. are definitely sensitive to that, that feeling of you know just being vulnerable in our conversation can really stir the hearts of women to respond in maybe beyond a friendship kind of way. So I think that caution about the depth of the sharing with women, especially those that, you know, you're not pursuing beyond yeah. friendship is, is an important thing to have. Jack, I, I'll just add as a man here, the real sensitivity we need to have. I have found myself, uh, you know, as a teacher of 
God's plan for sexuality and having male and female students over the years come to me with intimate questions, I've had to learn the hard way certain boundaries that are, are necessary to safeguard a woman's heart, uh, things that I didn't really understand. And I'd urge you, Jack, to be attentive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your relationships. I don't want to be overly cautious in the sense that you get scared away from even entering into relationships, but just to be aware, the heart is a sensitive place, Mm -hmm. and we need to have a particular sensitivity towards those sensitivities, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. And the Holy Spirit is the knower of our hearts, It's very important that we are in tune with the Holy Spirit as we seek to relate to other tender hearts. And also to regularly give thanks for the enrichment that we are all bringing to one another's lives. And I think every true friendship is always an opportunity to love God more, to love people more, to fulfill our purpose. So certainly don't want caution to get in the way of rejoicing in the gift of human relationships and the blessing that is. I think maybe part of that earlier comment I made about navigating is to acknowledge that there's no perfect way to do this. It's going to be messy. There are times when there are hurts, and that is part of our every human story. And it it can be sad at the time, and it forces us to trust that the Lord has a bigger plan for each one of us that he's working out in our relationships right now. Better to get out of the boat, Jack, and sink than never to get out of the boat. Mm. Be not afraid. Well, it is time to say goodbye to you for this week's episode. So grateful to all you guys listening out there. If you have a question you want to submit, please go to askchristopherwest.com to do that. We also have a new way that you can support us. We would like you to consider becoming a patron of the Theology of the Body Institute. And there are all kinds of levels that you can enter in as a patron. We want to ask you to help support us. And in return, we want to help support you. At the different levels of being a patron for the Theology of the Body Institute, you get all kinds of different levels of formation from us. We want to make a commitment to you to form you, to learn, live, and share this theology of the body far beyond what you're getting in this podcast. And being a patron of the Institute is one way to do that. You'll see in the show notes a link where you can learn more about that. We just encourage you, even right now, to to scroll down to the show notes, click on that link about learning how to be a patron. We would be so grateful. We can't do this work Without you guys, we have a mission to spread this around the world, and we need those who believe in what we're doing to help us accomplish that mission. So please scroll down there, click on the link to learn more about becoming a patron. Until next time. Wait a minute. What what did I forget? No, I forgot. I never finished that part of my opening story. Remember you said it was supposed to take an hour from oh, the yeah, hotel yeah, 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 to our yeah, friends? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never finished that. Good. So, so what how long it actually ended up taking us two and a half hours to get there. Very tragic, but my friend with whom I was traveling was so forgiving, so bless her. That's the end of the story you didn't We hear. need to know we're loved when we have those misadventures. Right. Yes, we do. Bless you guys. You are a gift. Become what you are. Bless you.
Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes. The road that the GPS wanted us to go on was actually just two muddy ruts going up the next mountain. It just not even a road at all. It didn't even have gravel, much less pavement. And we just said, nope, next. Going right along. (laughs) 